0: This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor John Gravey, director of the Wormby-Rudman Center for Justice Leadership and Public Service. Learn more about the center at law.unh.edu rudman. Welcome back to the show. It's been a few months.
1: It has. It's nice to be back. Nice to see you, AJ. All
0: right. So we have possibly two topics we're going to hit in this episode. Let's start off with one that's really caught a ton of headlines in the last couple of months, and that is U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Clarence Thomas has been embroiled in some controversy again, but this time related to him personally with regards to his relationship with Harlan Crow and his all sorts of, I don't want to editorialize and say sketchiness, but that's the way many people are phrasing it. And unsure, people are unsure like how exactly ethics works with the U.S. Supreme Court. Because it doesn't it doesn't work like other branches of of the government. So, I mean, at at a high level, how how are ethics determined to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, you know, I'm I I always use this line in in uh, in my constitutional law classes from the Mel Brooks movie. It's it's good to be king. Uh, But, um, you know, the court is really king of the judiciary system. You know, it's really unconstrained by. Anything other than, you know, the jurisdictional limits that are placed on it uh, in Article three of the Constitution. And so um, the U.S. Supreme Court, unlike all other federal courts, um, does not have a judicial code of conduct that um, it has adopted and agreed to abide by. Um, And, um, you know, people have pointed this out for years. Um, but, um, at the end of the day, it's up to the court itself to decide if it's going to, uh, you know, adopt such a code and it has thus far, uh, decided not to do so. Now during, you know, regular, uh, re- you know, um, relatively, I don't know what to, what a peaceful, isn't the right word, you know, during, during more tranquil times, um, it's not the sort of thing that draws a lot of attention. Um, but, you know you sort of couple the times that we're in right now which are so partisan and where the court is is undeniably being um very very aggressive um in changing american constitutional law you, you know you combine that with the lack of an ethics code and um you know the um uh the the, the uh, limited nature of the disclosures in particular uh because there are i mean the you know supreme court justices are still uh, obliged to fill out um you know, disclosures uh, that other federal, that, you know, when I was a federal employee, I had to fill it out every year, too. Um, but you combine it with, um, you know, sort of a limited understanding of what they need to disclose on the, those disclosure forms, and it's going to draw attention. And that's what's happened right now. And, and you know, not just with Justice Thomas, but um, there have actually been a lot of stories in the last few weeks about other justices, too. But Justice Thomas, um, I mean, the scope of what ha- has been undisclosed um, is really quite, Uh, something when it comes to Justice Thomas and his relationship with this uh, billionaire Harlan Crow and uh, um, Harlan Crow has funded uh, causes near and dear to the hearts of um, you know those on the far right who are are cheering on um, you know the the rulings that that Justice Thomas and Justice Alito and a couple of the other members of the court are are sort of championing and it's um, it's a recipe for controversy now in
0: in when you look at the ethics or the code of conduct that, that the Supreme Court has, I mean, we always talk about the checks and balances between the three different branches of the federal government. They're able to interact with each other to kind of make sure things are, in theory, kept, kept level, obviously, fluctuates over who, who, who runs what and what decade you're in and what's going on in, in, in various aspects of the world. But how, what is the check on the Supreme Court with regards to the other two branches that might have some form of interaction with us?
1: Well, you know, the, the constitutional check, the power that uh, Congress holds over the Supreme Court is, well, I guess you could, the, the most direct one is the impeachment and removal power. So federal, you know, federal judges, once they have their commission uh, serve, uh, you know, they have life tenure um, and they can only be removed from office through the process of impeachment by the House of Representatives and then conviction in the Senate by two thirds of the Senate. Um, and wow. so that's, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's intense. yeah, I mean, that's that's just not going to happen. Um, there are also um, I mean, you know, theoretically, Congress could uh, limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and federal courts. Congress does have a lot of control uh, over jurisdictions. So Congress could, in theory, um, write the court out of certain doctrinal areas, although, you know, that's actually a highly contested sort of theoretical debate. It's not something that Congress has done um but there is not there're not a lot of controls um that congress and the president have uh over the supreme court and over you know members of the federal judiciary more generally um the impeachment power is there but um uh it's not one that has been used it's not a power that's been used outside the context of of a showing of actual corruption like taking bribes or something like that
0: once again, something that's just been broiling our federal government over the last several months are these sort of financial disclosures. I mean, the meme online is Nancy Pelosi and her husband, and what happens with their their stocks does better than what many people in Wall Street get from their results. But when it, when you're looking at what's going on strictly with. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas in this situation with Harlan Crowe, I mean, there was property that Harlan Crowe, I I don't believe allegedly is even necessary. I think he did purchase and that his mother was Clarence Thomas's mother was still living on at the time for way more than the property was listed as being worth. And that's very problematic right there.
1: It it yeah i mean the the appearance is not good just today too it was in the paper that apparently he paid the private school tuition for a grand nephew of justice thomas's um uh and um you know he allowed the justice's mother to live in that house then rent free after he purchased the house there's a lot and and you know the scope and scale of the vacations um and flights and other things too i mean it's really it's really quite something you know um it's so much about the supreme court um it, you know, involves norms, you know, a really un- like norms that that you, you hope that the court will uh, be attentive to because um, uh, there are no enforcement mechanisms or little in the way of enforcement recogn- uh, mechanisms. But, you know, the court, the court in Marbury versus Madison grabbed quite a power for itself. It grabbed the power to be, you know, the final word on the meaning of our Constitution um, in a in a society that identifies as a democratic republic. So, you know, these nine people uh, in, in robes in Washington, D.C., have an astonishing amount of power. Um, and uh, and But, it, you know, one of the lessons of history is about that the court gets that it needs to act with discretion and that it needs to be mindful of optics in its act, you know, so that when it exercises that power, um, its rulings will continue to be respected. Um, I mean, it says we are a law court. We are not an arena where partisan politics plays out. But at the end of the day, when the Supreme Court makes a decision, it doesn't have the power, uh, it doesn't have any way to go enforce that decision. Uh, It doesn't have the power of the purse. Um, And so the court has long been thought to recognize the need to sort of reinforce the view that it's a law court, that what happens there is law. It's not just our politics and that Idea has been put to the test recently, for you know, fairly or not. I'm I'm not saying you know I'm not taking a position on that, but you know, the leaking of the Dobbs opinion, and then you know, and then the Dobbs opinion itself overturning, you know, a precedent that um, is obviously you know one of the most one of the most uh, well-known precedents, right, in American constitutional law. Um, what the court has done, it's clearly I I, well, I think it's pretty clearly going to. To hold that affirmative action is unconstitutional later this term i just took a, a case earlier this week where it's going to transform the law of administrative agencies now these can all you know depending on one's perspective and what one believes about what, how power ought to be exercised these, these may all be great developments but the fact is not everybody sees it that way yeah. and there's always going to be a huge segment of the public that is going to be um, eyeing the court with skepticism when it's changing the law like this and when the justices act in a personal manner that seems to say, we don't care what you think, um, you know, that can be problematic. You know, if if at the end of the day, uh, the court wants to be seen as an institution whose judgments should be respected, regardless of whether or not one agrees with them. Um, so that's that's. Uh, I, I don't think the court has done a very good job of that. You know, I, I worked um, I don't mean to go on so long, but um, you know, I worked for seventeen years in the federal courts. I worked for three judges who were appointed by Republican presidents, and I worked for three judges who were appointed by Democratic presidents. And I used to tell people all the time because there's always cynicism about government, of course, right? And I used to say, you know, I think you'd be really pleasantly surprised if you saw what goes on behind the scenes. That you know, I never once thought I, I certainly disagreed with rulings that my judges were involved in, and sometimes were making but I never felt like what was happening wasn't law. I never felt like what was happening was, you know, people ruling for their team or, you know, anything like that. Um, And I still think that's largely the case. I think that's the case certainly in the lower courts. Um, And I think it's largely the case at the Supreme court too. There's still a lot of cases that come out nine, nothing at the Supreme court, but in these cases, Uh, the five, four and now six, three cases, cases like Dobbs and the affirmative action case and the administrative agencies case and the gun cases and all these sorts of cases that gain so much attention. Um, You know, um, the way the court has behaved and the tone that it has taken in in some of its opinions um, has not communicated that we get it and we are the Supreme Court of the entire United States, even those of you who disagree with us. There's been sort of a triumphalism. Um, There's been a um uh, uh sort of a meanness uh, and a rhetorical um uh a sharp rhetorical approach that would never have flown you know in the court that i worked on you know the first circuit um and i think the court is doing damage uh to its reputation through the behavior of some of its members um with respect to these matters of disclosure, these matters of ethics, um, but also just the way they talk to each other and mm-hmm. the way they talk to the American people sometimes at these separate events. I mean, it used to be really unusual to hear a Supreme Court justice go give a speech anywhere about anything. But, you know, it seems like a lot of them are out on the speaking circuit right now and writing books and doing all this. And, I, you know, I think there's a price to be paid for that personally.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like that that public aspect of has really kind of snowballed since like the late 90s with Scalia, especially, spoke extensively. Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke extensively. Um, and it, I mean, how much do you think it might have to do that the supreme court's kind of green ultimately when it comes to being in this this federal position like we have new just new justices that were put in place in a very polarized time that have not had that much, they've only been on the court like a couple of years ultimately at this point and they haven't necessarily had the um the kind of calm calm background of, of the, the cultural climate to kind of settle in that's a really interesting question. You know, usually the question is, aren't they too old? But you're <laughs> you're saying maybe the court's
1: too young, or maybe the you know we have too many new members. There has been a huge amount of turnover. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the recent turnover has all been, of course, painful, right? You know, I mean, just, since Justice Scalia's death, we had the you know we had the Merrick Gar- Garland nomination not go anywhere, and then uh, Justice Kavanaugh was nominated, and and those hearings, of course. You know devolved into matters that you know go far beyond you know what kind of justice justice kavanaugh was going to be um and then um you know when justice ginsburg died of course the confirmation of justice uh coney barrett was was rushed through seemingly in contradiction to some of the statements that were made you know when um when merrick garland's nomination was pending and so it's you know all of that i think you're absolutely right all of that informs um you know, perhaps a lack of a lack of full understanding on the court and insularity, you know, um, that we're seeing, I I think, too, like the whole idea of of the justices themselves not being subjected to interviews during the leak investigation and that coming out. um, I mean, it's like, why? What are you thinking? right. Like, do you really think the American people are going to think that this was like we've got to get to the bottom of this type of investigation? if the justices themselves were exempt from, you know, being asked questions. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, real, real life people out there are going to say what, <laughs> you know, what, I mean, and they're going to say, and they're saying the same thing. I'm sure Justice Thomas feels like none of my rulings have been affected by these lavish vacations or anything like that, but. You know, to, to Joe and Jane out there who are, you know, it's like, what are you kidding me? You know, you, so I had $500,000 worth of vacation is, you know, are, are, are being conferred on you. And you, you really think that that, you know, we don't you know, that 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 you're unaffected then by the fact that this person has a vested interest in certain positions prevailing at the court, um, plus You know, Justice Thomas's wife, there's also the problem that she is. She's she's such an activist and has has been involved in um, and really pretty extreme um, uh, causes recently um, and the optics that that creates. So there's just a lot of problems there. There's just no doubt about it.
0: And and a program that the Warren B. Rubin Center also has regularly is their Justice and Journalism series, which I mean, I think the impact of journalism on what's been going on with the courts the last 10 plus years also kind of is important, especially with some of the controversies that are being addressed. I mean, something that was another ethical dilemma is like from, for me personally, with from a journalistic standpoint, is Nina Totenberg and Ruth Bader Ginsburg with their extraordinarily close relationship, which right. to me seemed like an ethical issue inherently because the just like with politicians, journalists in theory should be not necessarily competitive, but at least being another check outside of government on what's going on with the courts. And that wasn't seen. We're seeing the same things, at least to me on the face of it. We're seeing that with the leak of the uh, Dobbs decision, not much interest in in the world of the mainstream media, um, which is concerning many people on the right side of the aisle. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 it's it's, you know, it's one thing if you're already
1: close friends and then somebody you know uh, moves into a position of power with government and in those situations i you know i'm i'm close friends with a federal judge because we clerked together we've been friends for 30 years um if i were to appear in a case uh, this judge would recuse herself you know and um i i am on her recusal list and so um um you know nobody nobody would say we shouldn't continue to be friends but w- you know there's an awareness of the optics uh, and like you, like you say um, but but it, it's even more troublesome when these friendships emerge after these people have become members of the court, because it's you know, it's it's very hard again for sort of everyday Americans to avoid the conclusion that, you know, this isn't just about friendship. Um, this is about access and this is about power.
0: Um, and to many people um, that feels corrupt. Do you think in the long term we're going to be seeing any changes or you think this just kind of going to gloss over and uh, the court will continue as business as usual?
1: Well, every you know, I'm kind of out of the prediction business because uh, <laughs> you know things continue to happen that I never would have predicted, but I will you know in the in the near term, no, I don't think anything will happen. um you know, right now, I mean, I think another problem with our government uh, is capture. um you know, I think I think political actors um and I think justices are are political actors. Now, I'm not saying partisan, but they're they're acting within our political order but um there are there there is big money behind the status quo, right? There's always going to be any any sort of significant change to the status quo is going to engender opposition from those who benefit from the status quo um and uh right now um there is uh uh there's extraordinary wealth um uh, behind the status quo, and um it, due in no small part to Supreme Court rulings um that wealth makes its way into the political system and um i d- that's what i think is the biggest um obstacle to change to, to to significant change within within our constitutional system right now um is the the amount of money that's invested in opposing change no matter what the topic and no matter you know what the what the context um it doesn't mean that we won't have change, you know, but some of our biggest changes have come after periods of, you know, cataclysmic events, you know, big changes after the Civil War, big changes after World War One, big, big changes after the Great Depression and then World War Two. That's when, you know, it, it, I don't think it's a coincidence um, when um, the status quo is just then interrupted in a way that um, uh, is really profound. Um, so we'll see. I mean, maybe we'll maybe we'll blow the debt ceiling, and the, the, the economy will melt down, and uh, that will engender change. I don't know, you know, but I I think it'll be painful, right? If uh, if it happens, so we'll see.
0: Professor John Graby, director of the Warren B. Rubin Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Sure, anytime.
0: Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To answer a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and the podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.